is, I have to confess, my first time in the Wilson Theatre, um, so, but welcome. Um, I, I think it's quite a nice, intimate kind of theatre. Um, tonight's event, we focus on the law relating to the regulation of weaponry in armed conflict. Um, this area of law, as you're, well, most of you will probably know, is um, crucial as it goes directly to the means and methods of warfare that can be used in an armed conflict. Now, as many of you also know, this area has um, come under renewed interest in recent times, particularly following um, Ottawa with the um, banning of anti or prohibition of anti-personnel landmines, followed by more recently Ottawa, um, the Ottawa Convention relating to cost munitions. In particular, this evening, both our speakers are going to explore all, all sorts of questions, but specifically um, the tension between regulation and prohibition of weapons. So the question is, is it preferable for the law to focus on regulating the use of certain weapons and thereby retain the consent and the support of key states, or should the law favor the prohibition of certain weapons, which then obviously is at the expense of um, some of lack of consensus or lack of state consent in certain respects. Now, this evening we have um, two um, experts in their respective fields. Our first speaker is Air Commodore Boothby, who will put forward his views as to why the regulatory approach is to be preferred. Um, and perhaps Tom Fortius from Human Rights Watch will begin to explore the reasons why perhaps the prohibition of certain weapons is preferable. Now, some background on each one of our speakers. Um, Air Commodore Bill Boothby served 27 years as an officer in the RAF, the Royal Air Force, legal branch. He's recently been promoted from group captain to Air Commodore. Um, and insofar as his background is concerned, he developed and implemented the British system for the legal review of new weapons and formed and led the team charged with conducting such reviews. He was also a member of the British delegation to the Oslo Conference, which obviously culminated in the Ottawa Convention. Between 2000 and 2006, um, he was also a member of the UK delegation to numerous conventional weapons convention conferences in Geneva, which culminated in the adoption of Protocol 5 to the Convention on Explosive Remnants of War. Um, his book, as you can see, is um, on display over there, is entitled Weapons in the Law of Armed Conflict, and more of that later on. Tom Porteous um, is the director of the London Office for Human Rights Watch, um, a leading NGO which many of you are familiar with, um, specialising in the area of human rights. Um, his background is that he spent some time with UN peacekeeping operations in Somalia as well as Liberia, followed by um, some years um, at the SCO from Commonwealth Office as a conflict advisor, particularly in respect to sub-Saharan Africa. Um, he's also had considerable experience in the area of journalism, and um, I'd like to welcome both of the speakers this evening, and we're going to start off with um, Bill Boothby. So, uh, in fact, first, I have to set up the PowerPoint. Okay. Thank you, Louise. 
Thank you very much, Louise, and uh, good evening, by the way, everybody. Thank you to Louise. Thank you also to Lisa for arranging this evening. And thank you to LSE for hosting it. And thank you to OUP for what we are about to consume later on in the evening, one hopes. And thank you to everybody here for coming, because I had nightmares last night. I thought you are going to be standing there in an empty room talking to yourself, as I usually do. Uh, I am indeed a member of the RF legal branch, and I do speak, however, in my personal capacity. I do not speak for the Ministry of Defence, I do not speak for the Royal Air Force, and I express entirely personal views tonight. Uh, I have, I think, a mixed audience here. There will be some of you who are international law specialists. There are some of you who are legal specialists, but not necessarily international law specialists. And then there are some of you who are wondering whether it really was wise to come and be surrounded by this hothouse of legal thought. I hope to provide something for all. To understand the issues to understand the issues that confront us today in relation to the regulation of weapons, we should, I think, delve into the past. The past, for my purposes, starts just under 150 years ago, in 1861. For then it was that an academic at the University of Columbia in the United States, Dr. Francis Lieber, prepared a code that two years later was issued by the Union side to its forces for use in connection with the American Civil War. The Lieber Code's 157 paragraphs or articles uh, covered most aspects of the law uh, relating to armed conflict as it then was. So far as weapons were concerned, he expressly recognised the necessity during war of those measures that are indispensable for securing the ends of the war and which are lawful according to the modern law and usages of war. Dr. Lever looked at the limits to what necessity should permit, saying that it should not permit of cruelty such as the infliction of suffering for its own sake or for revenge, or the use of poison. It was on these early foundations that what has come to be known as the law of weaponry is based. The foundations are in my view critical to a correct understanding of the law itself and of the function that it fulfills. The notion of military necessity underpinned many of the legal developments in the law of weaponry that we will discuss, and if the requirements of military necessity are not sufficiently allowed for in this body of law, then the law itself will be prejudiced, mainly, I suggest, as being unrealistic. Dr. Lieber was writing a code which was used by one side in an armed conflict. This means that what he wrote does not itself, as such, bind anybody other than those for whom uh, it was written and who chose to apply it to themselves. It is not, and was not, therefore, international law in its own right. It was, however, an authoritative statement of where international usage had got to at that stage. Later, during the second half of the 19th century, gatherings of learned lawyers 
at Brussels and thereafter in Oxford, developed the thinking somewhat in the form of declarations that were also not law as such. <clears throat> it was, however, a meeting of mili a military commission that took place that was called together by <coughs> Tsar Nicholas II of Russia in 1868 that agreed the first treaty in the modern international law of weaponry, and that treaty was known as the St. Petersburg Declaration. The operative provision in that treaty prohibited explosive projectiles under 400 grams in weight, a rule that has long since been overtaken by events. But the Commission agreed a scene-setting or preambular paragraph in the treaty, which has also had a profound influence on the development of the law. It states that the only legitimate object of states in war is to weaken the military forces of the enemy, and that this object will be exceeded by the employment of arms which uselessly aggravate the sufferings of disabled men or render their death inevitable. This has since evolved into the simple principle that prohibits the use of weapons of a nature to cause superfluous injury or unnecessary suffering. And that is a principle that applies today to all states because it is universally accepted as being customary law about which a little more in a moment. <coughs> Some seek to argue that the Declaration, the St. Petersburg Declaration, and thus the principle of unnecessary suffering, fixes a defined limit to suffering or injury, a sort of line in the sand beyond which it's unlawful to go. That is not the correct interpretation, as we shall see. And it is significant that in the final paragraph, the Declaration makes the point that this body of law is all about conciliating the necessities of war with the laws of humanity. So there is, and always must be, a balance between military necessity on the one hand and humanity on the other. There can be no absolute limit, no line in the sand. There is a second customary principle in weapons law that therefore similarly, because it's customary, binds all states whether they're party to particular treaties or not. It really dates, in my view certainly, from 1977, when it was expressed for the first time in a treaty called Additional Protocol 1. This second fundamental principle holds that conventional <coughs> weapons that are indiscriminate by nature are prohibited. The World War II V1 and V2 rocket systems, and I suggest certain more recent Scud missiles, could be characterised as breaching this rule. There was no such articulated rule before 1977, so for the international law train spotters amongst us, it seems to me clear that this was a new rule that was introduced by Additional Protocol 1, and that therefore means that by virtue of the statement made on ratification of that treaty by most NATO nations, including the UK, in relation to nuclear weapons, that this rule does not apply for those states in relation to nuclear weapons. I rush to say that that observation should not, of course, be taken to imply that nuclear weapons are necessarily any less discriminating 
than certain other legal weapons. But we divert from the development of the law relating to weapons, and treaty law in particular. In 1899 and 1907, at the Hague Peace Conferences, the states agreed rules prohibiting the use during wars between states of bullets that expand or flatten easily in the human body. For example, dum-dum bullets. And they also agreed a declaration abstaining from the use of projectiles whose sole purpose was the diffusion of asphyxiating gas. So the rules did not apply to armed conflicts involving only one state, internal armed conflicts if you like. Another considerable limitation with some of those early treaties was that they were only binding where all of the parties to the conflict were bound by the treaty. If a non-party state became involved in the conflict, then the weapon could be used. The main problem, however, with the gas declaration was it only applied if the diffusion of gas was the only object of that projectile. So if it had a blast or fragmentation purpose as well, it was not covered by the treaty. This shows how important it is to examine the language of a weapons law treaty very carefully. The text will have been the subject of painstaking negotiation. I know, I've been involved in it and represents precisely what states have been able to agree. States will have had their reasons for not going further. But the sole object language in the gas treaty did allow for combined effect gas weapons to be used in World War I. It is unsurprising, therefore, that after the World War I gas experience in the trenches, the existing law was found to be inadequate. This process of battlefield experience informing development in the law of weaponry is something of a recurring theme. So it was that a protocol was adopted in Geneva in 1925, the Geneva Gas Protocol, agreeing a more comprehensive ban on asphyxiating gas. And bacteriological weapons were added to the ban as well, and specifically getting rid of the sole object language which had provided the World War I loophole. Many states participated, however, in that 1925 protocol, but on the basis that each of them would not use such weapons first. They reserved the right to do so, however, in response to the use of such weapons by an adverse party. For many years, this no-first-use position was a weakness, because states could be a party to the treaty while maintaining their arsenals of chemical and biological weapons in case second use became necessary. But the 1925 protocol has since been rather overtaken by events, in particular by the 1972 Biological Weapons Convention and by the 1993 Chemical Weapons Convention. These documents are not only law of armed conflict treaties, but they are also arms control treaties, in the sense that they prohibit the possession, the stockpiling, the transfer, the manufacture, and so on and so forth, of those weapons. <coughs> Interestingly, the Biological Weapons Convention prohibits development, production, stockpiling, acquisition and retention of bacteriological and biological weapons and toxins, but does not explicitly refer to their use. However, 
there was a later meeting of the state's party to that treaty, they agreed that the prohibition effectively extends to use. And that's obviously so, because how can you use that which you're not allowed to possess in the first place? The Chemical Weapons Convention, on the other hand, prohibits use, production, stockpiling, and so on of chemical weapons. It prohibits the use of riot control agents also as a method of warfare, but it does permit their use for law enforcement and domestic riot control purposes. With weapons of this nature, the mutual assurance that a prohibition on possessing and stockpiling the weapons gives is, it seems to me, an important factor in persuading states to take part in the treaty regime. Equally important is the inspection regime under the Chemical Weapons Convention, a mutual verification process. No such comprehensive regime has, however, yet been incorporated into the Biological Weapons Convention. Incidentally, and for completeness, I should mention also the 1997 Ottawa Convention on Antipersonnel Landmines, which many of you will have heard about, which also falls into the same category of being an international humanitarian law treaty and at the same time an arms control treaty. We can see already how this body of law dealing with weapons consists of two fundamental elements. The first seems, I know, rather nebulous. I referred to it earlier as usages of war and as customary law, or <coughs> custom for short. This customary law consists of the rules reflecting <coughs> what states actually do in the belief that they are legally obliged to conduct themselves in that way. This customary law element in the law includes the superfluous injury principle that I told you about earlier on and the principle that conventional weapons that are indiscriminate by nature are prohibited. The second customary rule I told you about. Customary law of weaponry does, however, go rather wider than these principles, but exactly which rules have become customary and thus bind all states is a matter of some controversy, as we shall see. Clearly, states are at the centre of the formation of this customary law, and of course states are at the centre of the other great element of the law of weaponry, namely treaty law. A treaty is an agreement reached between states which sets out the legal obligations of states under the treaty. It's for states to negotiate such instruments, to adopt the final text if they so agree, for them then to state uh, or to decide whether to make that document uh, something to which they are bound, and if so, then to implement the treaty's obligations domestically. All state processes. It's clearly appropriate that states are at the core of both of these elements of lawmaking, customary law and treaty law, because the obligation is placed on each state to implement the, implement the obligations it takes, and, of course, the armed forces are operating in the name of the state when they're involved in an armed conflict. I should also mention that when deciding to take part in a treaty, a state can declare its understanding of the meaning of particular provisions in the text. Professor Christopher Greenwood, that great teacher at this school, now elevated to the international bench, often used to describe treaties as international disagreements reduced into writing. And these statements of interpretation that states make when ratifying treaties are sometimes used to maintain the differing opinions or positions 
that had to be compromised at the negotiating table to reach a treaty text in the first place. Of course, if enough states either take part in a treaty or amend their behaviour to act in the way that the treaty prescribes, the relevant rule may become customary and bind all states. That is a complex proposition, however, which I examine in my book, and I'm not going to go into now. <laughs> At this point, I should refer to an impressive piece of scholarship, however, that the International Committee of the Red Cross has published, setting out what they see as the rules of customary international law, which they consider apply to all states in armed conflict. It is fair to say that not all scholars agree with the International Committee of the Red Cross's conclusions in its customary law study. While I agree with much of their declared methodology, there are occasions when they seem too ready to find a customary rule or to apply that rule to armed conflicts both between states and within a state. Specifically, contrary conduct by certain states is sometimes, in my view, given rather short shrift, or the declared methodology is otherwise departed from. So there is one of the important contemporary issues in international weapons law, namely what exactly is the current state of customary international law. But let us go back to treaties. Treaty law has developed over the last century or so to address weapons that give rise to particular, usually humanitarian, concerns. We've already mentioned expanding bullets in the 1899-1907 declarations, where the concern was the degree of superfluous injury which was seen to be occasioned by these munitions. But we might today ask, is it right to have a blanket ban on such weapons that are designed to stop a target in instantly, this is the expanding bullet, is it right to have a blanket ban on such weapons when they're designed to stop a target instantly with reduced ricochet risk, particularly in an era such as our own, when suicide bombers or hostage takers, if not, if not stopped immediately, will create mayhem among civilians? Does the rule negotiated a century ago still hold good today? Or can it now be said that the additional suffering occasioned by the use of such a weapon in particular circumstances is not unnecessary and therefore is not unlawful. The argument will be that the balance has been changed by developments in the nature of conflict, another important contemporary controversy. This theme of experience in law leading to legal provision features again at this point. It was the attempts to use the environment as a weapon in the wars in Indochina in the 1960s and 1970s seeding rain clouds in an attempt to flood the adversary's um, supply routes, the Ho Chi Minh Trail, that arguably spawned the Environmental Modification Convention of 1976, and environmental concerns in general led to Articles 35 and 55 of Additional Protocol 1. The first of these, that's the Environmental Modification Convention, uh, prohibits the use of the environment as a weapon and addresses more specifically environmental modification techniques. The second set of provisions under Additional Protocol 1 prohibits weapons and methods of warfare that are intended or may be expected to cause widespread, long-term and severe damage to the natural environment. 
I should mention at this point the Convention, the Weapons Convention. It is an important treaty in the law of weaponry. It is an overarching convention under which the 109 states that are party to that treaty, including the United Kingdom, can negotiate ad hoc protocols to address particular weapons concerns and technologies. The Conventional Weapons Convention process, however, stipulates that consensus is required among states, or at least among those states that are present and negotiating on a particular issue, before a new protocol can be adopted. Some of those states are becoming increasingly opposed to developments in this area of law, partly at least because of the financial implications. The environmental consequences of war have been a recurring theme in the development of law on weapons. Environmental damage may arise from the use of particular types of weapon, so for example mines, booby traps and similar devices may occasion casualties among the civilian population after the conflict is over. They may impede post-conflict restoration and use of land and buildings. Five further treaties have been adopted in the last 30 years that are at least in part focused on these sorts of issues. Two protocols to the Conventional Weapons Convention and indeed the Ottawa Convention on Antipersonnel Landmines have been negotiated to address these dangers, initially by reflecting best practice and then thereafter with a mixture of prohibitions and restrictions. Then we have a treaty to address the clean-up of all explosive munitions after the battle. That's the Protocol 5 to the Conventional Weapons Convention that Louise referred to earlier on. And then, of course, most recently, we have the Cluster Munitions Convention, about which more anon. All of this treaty-making demonstrates that environmental impact and dangers to returning civilians after the conflict has ended remain important drivers in the law relating to weaponry. Mines certainly have been criticised publicly as a, a, a weapon system, and the nations agreed in 1996 in the amended mines protocol of that year to limit to limit the risk to limit the risk to civilians by making more specific provision as to marking fencing of mined areas, including technical requirements limiting the active lives of certain mines and by requiring that they be fitted with self-destruction and self-neutralisation mechanisms. The treaty even stipulated the required level of effectiveness of these mechanisms. This protocol did not, however, satisfy those who were seeking a total ban on anti-personnel landmines. A high-profile NGO and media campaign, famously involving Diana, Princess of Wales, led to an international initiative. Consensus for a ban could not be achieved in the Conventional Weapons Convention. So an ad hoc conference was arranged and an arms control treaty banning all anti-personnel landmines was adopted. Mines that would self-destruct or self-neutralise within a limited period and to a high degree of reliability and which would therefore not have posed a risk long after the battle were not treated as a special case. The United States argued for <coughs> such an exemption, lost the argument, and has remained out of the Ottawa Convention. Not just for that reason, for others as well, but I'm sure that was significant. Some weapons treaties deal, however, with weapons that in themselves 
some may see as occasioning unnecessary suffering or, or as being indiscriminate. The states were not prepared to say that these weapons did in fact have those characteristics, not least, because that would have meant that th there would have been an implicit admission, if you like, that past use of such weapons would have been unlawful. So protocols to the Conventional Weapons Convention address mines and booby traps, as we've seen. They also address, uh, in a short treaty, weapons whose primary effect is injuring by fragments that can't be detected in the human uh, body by X-ray. Equally, there are restrictions on the use of incendiary weapons under Protocol 3 to the Conventional Weapons Convention, and indeed there's a prohibition on certain blinding laser weapons. So when we try to understand the obligations that these weapons law treaties impose on the states taking part in the treaty, it is vitally important to examine carefully the text, in particular the definitions of which weapons are and are not covered by the provisions, and to see, for example, whether the treaty prohibits the weapon as such, for instance, the Antipersonnel Landmine Treaty, or whether it limits the use of the weapon, for example, in connection with um, incendiary weapons, and in the latter case, if it's a limiting treaty, what exactly those limitations are. So I hear you wonder, <coughs> what law binds the states that don't take part in these treaties? The answer is the customary rules in weapons law, but as we've seen, there is controversy as to what exactly those rules amount to. While the customary law study of the International Committee of the Red Cross has been criticised, justifiably in my view, it is certainly safe to conclude that the ban on poison is customary, along with the principles I've mentioned earlier and certain other rules. But bans in recent Conventional Weapons Convention protocols do not yet seem to me to have achieved this customary status, partly at least, because there is insufficient state ratification of those treaties, and partly because there is insufficient evidence that states that are outside those treaties nevertheless comply with the relevant rules. In the same way, as long as the United States, China, Russia, India and Pakistan remain outside the Ottawa Convention in relation to anti-personnel landmines, that treaty is only ever going to bind the states that are party to it. It is not customary. So how is new weapons law formed? Well, new treaty initiatives seem to require expressed humanitarian concern backed up by sufficiently convincing empirical evidence. If you are to get new treaty arrangements, you need state support, as it is states that make the treaties, as we've seen. While NGO initiatives are important, if we are to make a difference here, clearly the support of states that would otherwise possess, transfer or use the relevant weapon is vital. But states may take some convincing, mindful as they will be, of their limited defence budgets, the potentially substantial costs associated with obtaining an alternative capability, the expense resulting from the disposal of existing weapons, the need to expedite research and development of substitute weapons, and so on and so forth. So what does all of this tell us about the future? Is the consensus approach within the Conventional Weapons Convention the right approach? In 2006, there was a failure under the Conventional Weapons Convention process to achieve progress in the case of mines other than anti-personnel mines. And so far, in relation to cluster munitions, 
progress has not been quite as quick as some might have wished. Let's put it in those terms. So here we have another matter of controversy in the modern law of weaponry. We have a convention on cluster munitions, agreed in Dublin, adopted in Oslo, which will be increasingly ratified by states. Six states party as at last weekend. You could say to yourself that every time a state ratifies, that is progress. But if your objective is to rid the world of weapons that are the subject of humanitarian concern, you could alternatively ask whether it is sensible to make a large leap in the direction of a ban in which states that do not possess the weapon will be only too happy to participate, but where states that actually rely on such weapons will be understandably hesitant. Is it perhaps better to adopt a more inclusive and gradualist approach to development of the law, in which states that use, manufacture, stockpile and so on the weapon in question feel better able to participate on whatever basis suits them? Of course, there will always be those states that simply say no, or perhaps yet, to proposals for new law, and the counter-argument suggests that a relatively radical treaty that maintains what some regard as the moral high ground and shames those involved into participation is the better approach. And yet, by not devoting the time required to achieve consensus among the specially affected states, and by producing what some will see as a radical text for the Cluster Munition Convention, are we producing another international law document that certain pivotal states will again be unable to accept? And does this benefit the notion of an international law that applies to all states and that binds them equally? We will only know the answer to this in, say, 10 or 15 years from now. But what if this comprehensive prohibition on cluster munitions effectively precludes achieving consensus on less radical but more widely acceptable legal rules that relevant states would have been more likely to implement? Is an incremental approach to be preferred, or would it perhaps produce a legal result so complex that knowing what law binds which state to what extent becomes almost impossible? In short, do we back the tortoise or the hare for the future development of the law of weaponry? So what are the likely areas for new law in relation to weapons? I've already mentioned the environmental dimension and you will have correctly concluded that reductions in the suffering occasion to combatants is also likely to feature again in the future. Depending on to whom you talk, you'll hear mention of depleted uranium, of white phosphorus, of mines other than anti-personnel mines, and even of unmanned aerial vehicles. Others will refer again to high-velocity bullets and flechettes, topics which have been discussed in the past, but on which it has not been possible to secure agreement among states. In my view, it is critical that before initiatives for new law are embarked upon, proper account is taken of the existing law and of the military utility of the weapon. New law should be developed only where it is demonstrably needed and where user nations are convinced of the case for legal change. I would suggest, however, that rather than develop even more treaty law, we would do well to secure the wider implementation of the law that we already have, including the obligation legally to review new weapons, a task undertaken for the United Kingdom 
by the Doctrine and Concepts Development Centre at Shriven. My own view is that when considering initiatives for the development of new weapons law, we need to maintain the traditional legal balance between military necessity and humanitarian concern. Francis Lieber was right, in my opinion, to put military necessity at the heart of this area of the law. But there is a delicate balance here, which radical approaches run the risk of disturbing, and the adoption of treaties that remain unratified by states would make the greatest practical difference, would make, would make the greatest practical difference, maybe counterproductive. War is and remains a fact of life, and states will continue to pursue technologies that give them an advantage in the modern battle space. While military necessity must certainly yield to unnecessary suffering, legal initiatives that make it impossible for states to defend themselves will simply founder. Global interest lies in maintaining the proper balance between what are and will remain competing interests. Thank you. for our political leaders 
uh, to marry these two perspectives, the humanitarian and the, and the military perspective. As uh, General Rupert Smith, uh, I think, argued uh, very powerfully in his recent book, The Utility of Force, which I urge anyone who hasn't read it already to, to, to read, these wars, you know, they're not only counterinsurgency and, and terrorism <coughs> operations, uh, but essentially they are wars that are fought among, among people, among civilian populations. Uh, and uh, the indiscriminate use of, of weapons in such wars, or the use of weapons that themselves are inherently indiscriminate, is in my view inherently counterproductive uh, and will not ultimately contribute to the winning of those wars. Uh, we've seen this in Afghanistan where the unacceptably, in our view, high civilian casualty rate of ISAF and NATO airstrikes has proved to be, a, at the very best, a public relations disaster for Western forces and the Afghani government that uh, they back, uh, and at worst, a, a fantastic recruitment tool for the Taliban, who obviously we want to defeat. We've seen this dynamic at work also in Israel's wars uh, in southern Lebanon, uh, and more recently in Gaza, where the idea has, has completely failed to inflict decisive victories on either uh, Hezbollah or on uh, Hamas, who are far uh, inferior uh, adversaries, uh, adversaries uh, from a military perspective. Uh, but by killing and, and wounding large numbers of civilians, uh, the uh, Israelis have uh, helped to further alienate uh, civilian populations among the Lebanese and the Palestinians and boost support for radical groups, which I hope is not their aim. I could also talk about the impact of uh, the use of explosive weaponry in such counter-terrorism operations uh, as uh, the one that we recently saw in, in Somalia, ongoing in fact, in Iraq and other uh, fronts in, in the war on terror. Uh, my, my basic point is this, uh, that the West's military and technological uh, advantages and those of its allies like Israel or Ethiopia in Somalia over the, the grievance-based uh, political uh, movements that are their adversaries, like the Taliban or Hamas or Hezbollah, can prove to be a major political liability unless used with very serious restraint. Um, so what's the source of that restraint going to be? Well, in strictly legal terms, it's imposed by a combination of, uh, of the laws of war, IHL, and prohibitions of certain categories of weapons. But politically, I think it's actually necessary to go beyond the legal paradigm uh, if we're to behave with the restraint that's actually required, in my view, to make our military interventions work. Put it, to put it another way, I think that uh, in the wars that we're fighting at the moment, we need to behave more like policemen uh, and less like soldiers. Um, I think British military strategists actually uh, understand these points very well about the need for restraint, at least in theory. But in practice, you know, in the heat of battle, uh, it's, uh, it's very hard to implement such restraint when you have to deal with, uh, when you have to balance it, if you like, against the demands of force protection and the domestic politics of, of body bags. Uh, I think I've kicked a ball rolling here, which I could dribble for some way further, but I think I'll park it here and just focus uh, on four points that I wanted to make in direct response to uh, uh, Bill Booth's presentation, and then perhaps return to 
uh, the, 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 this point that I just made uh, in, in conclusion. First of all, I want to uh, address the point that uh, Bill Boothby makes about uh, the importance of customary law uh, and what he appears to see as the dangers of uh, weapons ban treaties such as the, man uh, the Mine Ban Treaty and the Clusters Convention. I think he overstates his case somewhat uh, when he argues that having an inclusive agreement, uh, even a weak one, through the Convention on Conventional Weapons is better than having a stronger prohibition treaty which key, key states don't sign up to. <coughs> uh, customary law is, of course, immensely advantageous um, because it becomes internationally binding. Um, uh, a treaty, however, even one like the Ottawa Convention or uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Oslo uh, Convention on Clusters, to which important states, I fully admit, have not signed up, can have, and I think do have, and will have in the case of the Clusters Convention, uh, convention an important stigmatizing effect, uh, which leads to a drastic reduction in the use of uh, certain categories of weapons. Indeed, uh, stigmatizing a weapon with a categorical ban can decrease or eliminate its use even among uh, non-states parties. And I think the, the Mind Ban Treaty is actually a perfect example of this. Um, and we believe in Human Rights Watch very strongly that the stigma of a treaty that absolutely bans a category of weapons is much more effective and preferable to a weak regulation uh, that includes all states um, you know, a la Convention on Conventional Weapons. Um, and, and that's a, a, a very good argument uh, for going for a full radical, in your, in your words, a radical ban. Uh, and that's why we have done that. Now, the Mine Ban Treaty is only 10 years old. Um, and yes, we still need to prove that the norm against anti-personnel mines is taking hold. Um, but evidence which has already been collected by uh, Landmine Monitor um, on all state practice uh, shows a strong compliance with the norm that was created by the treaty. Um, Anti-personnel mine users are now basically down to uh, Burma, sometimes Russia, um, uh, and a bunch of non-state actors or rebel groups. And that's a pretty impressive record uh, in 10 years. Uh, the agreement is being implemented by all members uh, 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 of the, uh, the treaty and, compli and complied with by nearly all non-members as well. Uh, what spurred Canada and others to establish the Mine Ban Treaty was the fact that the Convention on Conventional Weapons, Protocol 2, was so weak and ineffective. Uh, and the same goes for Protocol 5. It's weak uh, and it does not adequately, addre adequately address the uh, problems posed by cluster munitions and other explosive uh, remnants of, uh, of war. The fundamental problem with the Convention on uh, Conventional Weapons is that uh, its uh, decision-making process is uh, done by consensus, um, which drags everyone effectively down to the lowest common denominator. Uh, hence the uh, this is the reason why the Canadians decided to create the uh, Convention on Cluster Munitions, and it's why the, the Norwegians went ahead with the Oslo process on clusters. Now, in his talk, um, Bill Boothby seems implicitly to blame the, cluster, the Convention uh, on uh, Cluster Munitions for the, uh, 
the CCW's failure to get a cluster munitions protocol. But that's actually just not what happened. Uh, the conventional conventional weapons, the CCW, failed miserably to reach uh, a, a consensus for years before the convention on cluster munitions came about. In fact, it was the total failure of the CCW, the conventional conventional weapons, that led states like Norway to abandon uh, the CCW for an independent process and eventually uh, for a, a ban treaty. They did actually give the conventional and conventional weapons <coughs> ample chance to succeed, but it failed. Um, and uh, as the uh, conventional and conventional weapons could not uh, achieve a consensus uh, before the new convention, you can't really blame the shortcomings of the... You can't blame the, uh, the, the shortcomings of the convention on the... Uh, uh, the, the conventional and conventional weapons. Now, I think actually that the UK government gets this point quite well, um, and, and that's why it signed up for the uh, Convention on uh, Cluster Munitions outside of the uh, 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 Convention on Conventional Weapons, along with a lot of other states which are stockpilers and uh, users, or were uh, stockpilers and, and users of, of clusters. So I think that the UK government is actually on board on this point, um, and I think that uh, uh, the MOD should be proud of that. Um, my, my second point uh, is on the role of, of civil society, and I think that Bill Boothby actually underestimates the, uh, uh, the, the, the importance of the role of civil society uh, in its you know, essential advocacy uh, and research in pushing the boundaries of, of weapons law. Uh, yes, it's true that uh, <coughs> Legally, only states can uh, uh, make law, so, but um, and, uh, civil society can actually push states to take the right actions and, and, and can influence the contents also of the treaties that they, that they end up negotiating. Um, for example, the international campaign on, uh, uh, to ban uh, landmines for the, the Mine Ban Treaty and the, uh, the Cluster Munitions Coalition for the Convention on, on Cluster Munitions. Um, you know, from setting the ball rolling to the negotiating process where they actually present the arguments to the negotiators, provide them with uh, you know, the arguments, to encouraging signatures and ratifications in the, in the later stages, to monitoring them and the implementation <coughs> and compliance. Civil, civil society's role, the role of NGOs, um, is, is, is now widely acknowledged. And I'm not saying that without um, uh, the, uh, the civil society, none of these uh, uh, conventions would have actually uh, been uh, concluded. But uh, I think it's certain that without civil society, they would have been a lot weaker uh, than they turned out to be. Uh, the third point I wanted to emphasize is that um, I, I don't think that uh, Bill Boothby adequately underlines the humanitarian uh, uh, content of uh, weapons treaties, of, of modern weapons treaties. Uh, we should note that some of the, uh, the ban treaties that, uh, that Bill Boothby criticizes uh, not only prohibit weapons um, as di disarmament in instruments, but also have strong humanitarian provisions, uh, for example, to provide assistance to uh, the victims of, uh, of those weapons uh, and, re and reduce uh, the, the, the damage that they can, can, uh, can cause.
wars after wars. Um, this is particularly true of the, uh, the Mine Ban Treaty, of course, and of the uh, Cluster Munitions Convention. Um, the, mine, the Mine Ban Treaty requires uh, the clearance of mined areas within 10 years and urges uh, states parties to, um, in a position to do so, to uh, provide ass assistance to victims, um, which is an important uh, humanitarian element. My fourth point goes to the issue of military necessity. Uh, some of these weapons, are, in our view, uh, for example, landmines and, and clusters, are actually no longer necessary from a military standpoint. Uh, Bill Boothby says that while military necessity must certainly yield um, to unnecessary uh, suffering, um, legal initiatives that make it impossible for states to defend themselves will, will, will founder. Um, I, I wonder whether that's really, well, certainly there seems to be a contradiction there, but even if there isn't, um, when it comes to clusters, for example, it's important uh, to note that in modern wars, their utility is actually uh, declining quite uh, fast. Uh, it's certainly not true uh, that uh, the uh, conventional cluster munitions makes it impossible for states to defend themselves. Uh, in fact, the, the duds from uh, cluster munitions can, fill, can kill uh, friendly uh, troops and, and can also interfere with military operations. Um, so there's even a, a military disadvantage to the continued use of uh, cluster munitions. So to, to wrap up, um, I want to go back to um, the general point that I made at the beginning about the need in, in modern warfare, in the wars that we're fighting at the moment, wars that uh, General Sir Rupert Smith characterizes wars among, among people, the need to marry military needs with humanitarian concerns. Uh, close of it always gets wheeled out at these kinds uh, of talks, and I'll, I'll do the usual thing uh, and with the usual quote, but I mean, it is an important quote. You know, the, the war, he said that war is a continuation of politics by other means. Now, in his context, at the time he was writing, he, he probably meant. Um, by politics, he meant international politics or diplomacy. Um, in our era, era, the same principle holds, but it's not just international politics and diplomacy, it's actually local domestic politics that are also incredibly important. Um, and if you're fighting in, in Afghanistan or in Somalia or in Gaza or Lebanon, there's no such thing as a total military uh, victory over the adversary. It's a matter of, of winning hearts and minds um, and, and winning domestic and very local, often very local, political battles. And, and obviously killing civilians in, in large numbers through the use of indiscriminate weapons or through the indiscriminate use of, uh, particularly of explosive weapons, is obviously not going to help in that, in that effort. Now legal norms I think can help. Um, weapons prohibitions can play their part and so too can the laws of war, uh, international humanitarian law. Uh, though I think we do need to see much stricter enforcement of, uh, of, of IHL uh, and an end to the kind of impunity that I think we've all seen uh, in places like uh, Gaza and Somalia. Um, so legal norms can, can help, but ultimately I think the legal route uh, to restraint is, is limited, and it's always going to be limited. And, and, I, and here's where I agree with a lot of what um, uh, Bill Boothby says, you know, prohibitions of certain kinds of weapons, it's just not going to happen. Uh, you know, most of the civilians who were, ki were killed in Gaza in, in, in January were killed by uh, 
35mm shells, uh, and you're not going to see those banned uh, any time uh, in our lifetimes or thereafter. Um, so, uh, I, I, I think that, uh, and, and also, you know, you can get away with killing an awful lot of civilians without actually violating international humanitarian law, um, especially if you do so in, in remote areas uh, and you do it from the air. Uh, so what I, what I think we really need in our, in our militaries, in our publics, uh, among our political leaders, in our media, uh, is a change of attitude uh, which confronts head-on this question, you know, why is it that we so readily accept uh, or see as normal the use of explosive weapons in, in areas of Afghanistan, the occupied Palestinian territories in Somalia or Pakistan that are heavily populated uh, by civilians, and why do we continue to use, to see the use of such uh, weapons uh, as normal and un unproblematic and, and acceptable, even when we're <coughs> confronted with very clear evidence of the devastating effect of those weapons on the minds and bodies of you know, innocent uh, men, women and children. And in my opinion, we can only begin to challenge uh, those attitudes by pointing out that they're not only uh, of very questionable uh, moral value, but also actually profoundly at odds with our long-term strategic interests. Thank you. Now, actually, we have a choice right now. I, I um, uh, asked Tom Bilbisky earlier on whether he wanted to have a right reply to that. And I'm going to ask you again before we turn over to the audience. Should we go to the audience first? Brief response. Okay. Thank you very much, Tom. Very good. Um, I tried when I was writing the book to draw a distinction between two bodies of law. The law relating to weapons and the law relating to targeting. Tom has very carefully taken them both, put them in the blender, and they're all back mixed up again. Um, and when you're talking about weapons law, which is clearly what I was talking about, then you are talking about the distinction between what is lawful and what isn't in terms of a resource that you use. When you're talking about targeting, you are talking about the set of rules which for states party to Protocol 1 are set out in Articles 48 to 60, and which um, for states that are not party to Protocol 1 are set out in that ghastly phenomenon I mentioned earlier, customary law. The aim of which is to draw the distinction between lawful targets on the one hand and those which ought not to be engaged on the other to protect the latter and to ensure that you use your force only against the former. That's what the law tries to achieve and it's a law which we try to comply with. Trying to comply with that law, sometimes when we're fighting an adversary that is doing its level best to make it as difficult as possible for us to succeed in complying with that law. So you have built into modern conflict all sorts of difficult conundrums which it is very, very difficult to work through. Clearly, in an ideal world, all war would be fought on the most clinical of clinical bases and indeed there would be no casualties at all. But zero casualty war is of course a matter of fiction, not fact. And 
my comments, I was trying to focus on the world of reality. And the world of reality is that sometimes law does involve deaths and injuries and damage and destruction, which those conducting the targeting operations least wished for, least, least hoped for, and indeed least expected. The fog of war is something that is mentioned often. It is a very real phenomenon, and it is a further complication when it comes to seeking to try to ensure that you engage the legitimate, that you damage the legitimate, and you don't damage persons and objects which are off limits. Subject to that, let's launch in. Okay, well, um, we're going to open it up to the audience. Um, questions, comments, feedback? Would anyone like to kick start? Okay. Um, I'd just like to ask you a question about the, the, mil the military necessity end of the uh, equation. Um, how how much laws are developed and how much opinion? Because it seems to be that how much what's opinion and how much law is there within the area of military necessity? Because it seems there's a lot there's lots of subjective wiggle room there. I mean, just like by taking an analogy, of what's going on in the U.S. right now with torture. Um, and trying to define it, we have a former vice president who has completely changed his spots and now wants to, is now perfectly willing to, to talk about things he didn't want to talk about and have to debate on somebody else's watch. But he, he, he wants to obviously justify what the decisions they made about necessity. Of course, we're not talking weapons here, we're talking, we're talking torture, although it's interesting, just as I've been saying this to you, um, is, is, is part B of this question, is there any, is something involved with uh, intelligence gathering and uh, once you have a prisoner and trying to get information out of him to the extent that it uses something like waterboarding, is that a weapon? And, 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 and does that come under weapons of war because you've literally tied the person down and you're shooting bullets into them? But just going back to part A, um, how much is this objective or is it very subjective about where the necessity is and how much argument is there on that? Actually, before you, I'm sorry, I should have said, first of all, that I am actually going to take a couple of questions first so to give the speakers a little bit of time to think about and ponder on the respective questions. But also, um, before you ask, if you could tell us who you are and what your association with, that would be really, really useful too. So. Well, I, 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 I represent informally the U.S. Democratic Party. Wondering. 
mean, to what extent you really can do that? Because isn't the whole idea of weapons in deciding what is unnecessary suffering um, and some of those principles you were mentioning, is it, is it a false dichotomy, I suppose, is what I'm asking? Because to me it seems that one, they're both sides of the one. Okay. <laughs> My dreadful memory being what it is, I'll start with the most recent. Um, I do deal very, very briefly with the law of targeting because you've got to, when you're write, in writing a book, when you're writing a book of this sort, because it's background context. It, it gets difficult when you're dealing with something like incendiaries because there are, in the incendiaries protocol, um, targeting related rules. But on the other hand, when you're, when you're trying to write a book, I have discovered by trial and a considerable amount of error on the way, that you've got to bound what you're going to talk about. Otherwise, you end up um, sort of wandering around and not getting anything particularly specific. Um, is it realistic? Yes, I think it is realistic, actually. Because, essentially, my focus <coughs> has definitely been on the equipment that is used and rules that are specific ad hoc to a particular weapon or type of technology. And if, if it came into that category, then it got in there. If it didn't come into that category, then it didn't get anywhere near there, because that meant it was a general rule in relation to targeting. And one of these days, if I get the opportunity, I should write a book on that. That's scheme number two. Um, wiggle room, different perspectives being brought to the negotiating table. Well, yes. And then you start talking about cultural differences and that just people see things differently. And actually, in this audience, everybody will have listened to exactly the same words, but they will all have taken away a different appreciation of the significance of what has been said, because people are different. And that's why I cited the, um, the great alumni of this establishment, Chris Greenwood, because he um, his talking about this international disagreement reduced into writing is central to the point that you make. We all have our different perspectives, but we come up with a form of words, often designed to mask our differences, but to bring us a little bit further together, perhaps, than we were when we started the negotiation process. And that seems to me to be the nature of the activity, and therefore the utility of the activity. Military necessity. The subjectivity of the military necessity. Um, I think in, in, in truth there probably is a fairly large subjective element because um, the only thing I can think of to say usefully on that is to refer to the statement made by the UK about commanders, planners and others who have to make decisions necessarily have to do so according to their appreciation of the circumstances applicable at the relevant time. And that statement is a statement primarily directed at the targeting rules, but it seems to me it applies in the same way you could argue in respect of military necessity. It is, it is that which is necessary for the prosecuting of the purposes of the war, but then the purposes of the war are in the minds of the people who are making decisions. So if one sought to argue that it was entirely objective, I don't think you'd be getting that. Yeah, I, um, 
Well, Bill chided me for <coughs> mixing up uh, targeting with uh, weapons law, um, and now our friend from the U.S. Uh, Democratic Party has thrown in torture to the mix. So, uh, <laughs> but I, 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 mean, I sympathise with that because, I mean, you know, as a, as a human rights activist um, who has been concerned very much with the way in which uh, the uh, the UK and the US and, 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 and their allies have pursued uh, counter-terrorism objectives in places like Afghanistan and uh, Iraq and Guantanamo uh, Bay and, and elsewhere. I mean, it's all part of the same picture. And uh, our, our concern is the uh, lack of regard for, for human rights, but also the lack of regard for civilian life. Some which is not actually covered by any laws at all. And as I said in my in, in my talk, you can kill a lot of civilians without actually violating uh, any 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 laws of, of war. Um, uh, and, and that's uh, that's a fact of life. And, and I agree with uh, with Bill Boothby that there's actually no point in trying to change that. I think it would be a disaster, for example, to sort of open up the Geneva Conventions at this point because you'd probably end up with something worse. Um, uh, even though the Geneva Conventions are not particularly well suited to the sorts of wars that we have to, to fight at the moment. And that's why I said that what we really need to push for is probably an attitudinal uh, change, a cultural change, rather than uh, going down the route of the, the legal route. Having said that, you know, I, I mean, we do think in Human Rights Watch there's a lot you can do through the legal route. First is strict uh, application of, uh, and, and, uh, of, of, and enforcement of. Uh, the rules of war. We see far too many war criminals get, getting away with it, frankly, um, whether it's in Africa or the Middle East or, 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 or elsewhere. Um, but secondly, um, through uh, you know, through a, a very ambitious and, as, as you say, radical, I, I don't mind you using that word, it is a radical approach to, uh, to weapons law. And I think we've achieved actually quite a lot the way we've gone. And I think if we'd stuck to the conventional conventional weapons, we wouldn't have got anywhere at all. Um, uh, and, and what we've actually got is a mind-bound treaty and now a clusters, uh, a conventional cluster munitions. And yes, it's not perfect. Yes, there are a lot of very important states that have not signed up to these treaties. But I think that the stigmatizing effect will actually um, uh, mean that there will be a certain amount of compliance even among uh, non-states party uh, to those things. But I defend um, my... Uh, my uh, position of actually mixing up uh, uh, targeting, if you like, or general IHL with weapons law, because I, th I do think that they're two sides of the same coin. And I think that, for example, we wouldn't have got nearly as far as we have on, on, the, cl on the cluster munitions if it hadn't been for uh, what happened in Israel in 2006, because that actually did, uh, I, I think, I mean, did a, did a huge disfavor, obviously, to the victims of cluster munitions in, uh, in southern uh, Lebanon, but it did a huge favor to those who were pushing for a ban on cluster munitions because it showed just how, first of all, unnecessary these weapons are and just how destructive and devastating they were for the civilian population. And it gave the whole movement to create a, a, a clusters uh, ban uh, treaty uh, process a, a huge amount of, uh, of momentum, and I think it's the main reason why we've got to where we've got to now. Some would argue, of course, that it was the misuse on certain occasions of the weapons that gave the headlines, the images, and therefore the impetus to a process to get rid of a weapon which properly used most certainly had its military utility. It's interesting, isn't it, how everything 
in terms of how you view things depends upon the standpoint from which you come. Okay. Thank you. I'm fascinated by this differentiation between targeting and weapons. I'm glad to see that one of the co-authors of the U.S. Air Force Academy's textbook on arms control. We'll be looking at a right in the next edition, and I'd like to ask your opinion about one thing which we have great difficulty in our debate, and that's the cost of the air campaign of 79 long days and nights, when 98% of all targets were approved by judge advocate generals in terms of being just targets, and the weapons ordinance used on the target was proportional to the target. The other 2% obviously being targets of opportunity as flown by carrier-based pilots. Most of the missions were actually launched from mainland U.S. In hindsight, 80% of those targets turned out to be cardboard cutouts, and hence, in all instances, the ordinance used was disproportional to the actual target. This was an intelligence failure, and hence, of those 80% of targets, the judge advocate generals, the JAGs, who had signed the actual license for the pilot to deliver the weapons, turned out to potentially be an illegal license. How would both of you consider this great conundrum we're facing of writing maybe a one-page textbook on the cost of a 79-day air campaign, given these circumstances? Obviously, there's the second issue of machete in Rwanda, which definitely poses a great difficulty, but more so in terms of civilians. On the cost of the air campaign, how would you look at that one? There was a point at which you were describing the use, misuse, or effects of particular weapon systems in relation to how that led eventually to a consensus to create a prohibition on one, which you used this phrase, convincing empirical evidence is required to create that. And I was wondering if I would think about what that actually amounts to, when is empirical evidence being accepted? Because I do recall quite a lot of disagreement about what that meant in the last Gaza conflict in relation to where people were getting their sources of information in relation to the use of the white phosphorus in particular. But those are the kinds of arguments that come up every time there is one of these events. And I was wondering if you could give your thoughts on that. I'm going to take one more phone. Yes. Dan Tenry from Royal Air Force. It was said that you can't blame Oslo for the CCW's failure to reach agreement so far on cluster munitions. Would you accept that it's more difficult for the CCW to now succeed since the signature of Oslo? And with regard to that, to what extent is the perfect the enemy of the good? Shall I start with the last one? You black ribbon. Yeah, I owe him another bit. Well, look, I mean, I don't know, actually. 
colleagues, maybe they would say that um, actually it's still possible to achieve something through the CCW on, on, on clusters. I really don't know I, the, the, the answer to that. Um, but I would also say that actually what we've got in Oslo, as, as Bill very clearly sort of underlined, is by no means the, the perfect. Um, so it would be more the, the good being the enemy of the good, or the good being the enemy of the less good. Um, uh, we would say probably good being the enemy of the bad. Um, and I would say, no, it's not. Um, look, the, the cluster's munition is not perfect because the uh, you know, key states have not signed up to it, as you rightly said. But if it follows the model of the landmine treaty, uh, then the, 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 the mine-bound treaty, then you know, it could be actually pretty good if it leads to the conclusion that only Russia sometimes and Burma you know, regularly uh, uses this stuff. I don't know if Burma has any cluster munitions. They probably don't. Um, but uh, they probably do actually. But um, <laughs> the uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I, and at that point, you know, is 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 a a, a, a more comprehensive uh, uh, way of dealing with this through CCW even necessary, even if it was impossible or not, or not impossible. I don't know. Um, on the uh, issue of collecting evidence required, I mean, it's very difficult. You know. We have experienced just in the last few months a number of occasions where you know, it is actually very difficult to collect evidence of the misuse of, of, of weapons um, because those who do misuse weapons go to great lengths to stop you from collecting that evidence because it's very embarrassing. Um, and uh, we've seen this in Sri Lanka where uh, you know, the, 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 the media independent monitors have been consistently uh, denied access to you know, this small area, the so-called no-fire no zone very badly named, no fire zone in, in northern Sri Lanka. So we've been unable to really collect evidence of violations of the laws of war. We don't know if there are war crimes are being committed, and we don't say that war crimes are committed unless we actually have evidence. Uh, so, we, you know, and in Israel, you know, likewise, throughout the three-week period of the conflict in Gaza, we were denied uh, access, although we were able to sit on a little hill uh, just on the... Uh, border between Israel and Gaza, and we had a military analyst who used to work for the Pentagon called Mark Galesco, um, who was a former targeter, in fact, uh, for the Pentagon, who, who was able to identify exactly what kinds of munitions were being used over Gaza City, which, as you know, is one of the most densely populated areas of the world. And, 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 he, and he it was who first exposed the fact that the Israelis were using um, white phosphorus in this area, but actually, more importantly, that they were using 155 millimeter shells fired by heavy artillery um, in, uh, in a very heavily built up area. And sure enough, when we then later got into Gaza and spent time there, we were able to uh, collect more evidence of the use of these weapons uh, and of their devastating impact, particularly of the shells, in fact, on the civilian population. So it is very difficult to collect that evidence. Um, and uh, you know, I would also say that uh, you know, in, in terms of cluster munitions, it's not only their misuse in, I mean, all use of cluster munitions in the last uh, couple of decades, in, in, as far as we're concerned, and we've done a certain amount of, uh, of work on that, has been either in, in clear violation of the rules of war or actually pretty marginal, pretty dodgy, uh, even the British use of cluster munitions in, in, in Iraq. So, I mean, in our view, the use of these uh, the cluster munitions actually in any conceivable military circumstances today that you might use them is in, uh, are inherently discriminate. And on that basis, we have argued that they should be banned. And on that basis, actually, many states have accepted the argument that they should be banned. 
question about uh, the Jags and uh, Kosovo. Uh, really, I, 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 can't, I can't answer that question at all because I'm not familiar with the campaign in Kosovo. But I would say that uh, the work we did recently on Afghanistan, the uh, NATO uh, uh, and, and ISAF airstrikes in Afghanistan, we did a, a quite thorough analysis of the casualty figures. And uh, we concluded that, in fact, when the uh, strikes were planned in advance, according to in good intelligence, according to any intelligence, good or bad, uh, the, uh, uh, the airstrikes actually succeeded in, 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 in minimizing the numbers of civilian casualties. Um, it was only when uh, airstrikes were called in uh, response to troops coming into contact with the uh, uh, Taliban, uh, and therefore they were more or less unplanned, that was when we encountered very high civilian casualty rates. Um, but I don't know if that sort of has any bearing on your question, but I just thought I'd mention that. But perhaps you could answer those questions more expertly than I could. Yes. Um, taking the last one first, the CCW, the danger is that if there are continuing and repeated initiatives, and each time one weapon that has been demonized is then rendered unlawful and we then move on to the next one and the process continues and continues and continues. There is a risk, I fear, of fatigue, national fatigue, financial fatigue, and the possibility that states will simply ignore uh, negotiated treaty texts and that where you, you may well foreseeably end up with a situation where perhaps less radical, if I can use that word I used previously, less radical approaches might have been able to address the particular cause of the particular humanitarian concern. But in order to go for um, the five-star solution, one might well end up with um, that just not being possible anymore because states are not willing to go. Um, with the more demanding <coughs> legal arrangements uh, that have been um, settled by certain states. I'm not necessarily saying that that, in my view, is going to happen in connection with um, uh, cluster munitions. I, 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 I simply said, let's see, in 10 or 15 years' time, the jury is well and truly out. I just fear, um, in due course, there is a possibility of that. And I've raised the question in my talk and in my book, what... Um, impact does that sort of situation have for international respect for international law if you have these treaties which are established but then not ratified, not adopted, not participated in by the states that are capable of making the greatest difference uh, to that particular issue. On convincing em empirical evidence, I was really using that phrase in the context of um, the evidence that is put forward as justifying the weapons law provision and mindful of the extensive evidence that was put forward in support of the anti-personnel landmine ban. Um, and what I was seeking to say is that if you are going to get states to participate in a ban, and in particular states that are specially affected, i.e. states that are users, stockpilers, manufacturers, etc., with that particular weapon, then effectively you're going to need to make your case. 
and making your case is going to involve having convincing evidence available to demonstrate that the cost, if you like, is, is countered by the humanitarian benefit that the ban is going to produce. And if there is anything less than a convincing case there, then in practice, case uh, states are not going to be convinced. I have heard many a time loft across the negotiating chamber the protestation by many states, we need these weapons to defend ourselves. That is where the states in practice come from. It is not something that you hear in an academic discussion in an academic environment. It is most certainly something that you hear in practice in international negotiations. And therefore, be aware that with these processes there is a very real cost involved. And if you are going to persuade states to undertake that very real cost, you have to have a good case. Cardboard cutouts. Mm, nice one. Um, I cited the statement earlier on that the UK made when ratifying the um, additional protocol one that necessarily commanders have to make their decisions on the basis of the information from all sources reasonably available to them at the relevant time. Now, that information isn't always going to be perfect. It isn't always going to be right. Much will depend on all sorts of factors like what degree of access you have to the area of the um, operation, the area where you are choosing to attack. It's going to have, I, I won't go into it all, but you, all you can do in the end is make your best judgment. And sometimes you're going to make an incorrect judgment. And that isn't an easy thing to, to live with afterwards, I suspect. But nevertheless, all you can do is your best. Um, the final point I was going to make is you're talking about imperial, empirical evidence. When Tom was dealing with your question, he dealt with it from a slightly different perspective. Um, uh, when one is going in after the battle and seeking to interpret after the battle what may have happened and the circumstances in which decisions were taken at the time of the battle, I think a great deal of caution is required because one may or may not have available to one all of the information, including the flaws in the information, that was available to the person who was making the decision. And one, one may not necessarily be making the judgment as to the legitimacy of the attack upon the basis of what that individual was trying to achieve and what indeed the situation was on the ground at that time, as opposed to the situation on the ground as you see it when you visit the site of the attack sometime later. All I'm saying is caution before condemning. Okay. Ah, okay. Well, we're running out of time. Can we make these fairly brief and then we'll wrap up after these three then? Okay. Well, I've got a comment rather than a question, so it should be reasonably brief. Um, I'm Ian McNichol, I'm the Royal Air Force's uh, Deputy Commander-in-Chief of Operations, so I'm responsible for the Royal Air Force's front line, so my comments perhaps are partial and should be viewed in that light. Uh, Tom, you've talked about the discrimination or otherwise of air power, particularly in relation to Afghanistan. I know Human Rights Watch has done work there. Equally, ISA done work there as well. 
do things differently, that the opposition have an interest in playing up the numbers of civilian casualties. And for political reasons, it could be argued that the President of Afghanistan and Karzai has a, a reason sometimes for playing up the numbers as well. But regardless of the numbers, the work that ISAC has done has focused on the proportion caused by different methods. And let me say that I don't think any number above zero is acceptable in this, so this is not to be taken as uh, an apology in some ways or acting as an apologist for the numbers of casualties. But the number of casualties, according to ISAC figures, and this is not Operation Enduring Freedom, it's ISAC, the NATO operation, suggests that there are fewer than a third are caused by air delivered weapons. Around a third are caused by so-called direct fire or indirect fire, in other words, um, guns, uh, artillery, rocket fire, and somewhere approaching 40% caused by what's called escalation of force, in other words, people not stopping at roadblocks when challenged to do so, and other aspects like that. So, uh, I do take your point that where air delivery is pre-planned, it is more discriminatory, but I would argue that air delivery weapons are in many ways more discriminate than both the direct fire, or what might be thought of as army weapons, and indeed the so-called escalation of force, where you run into difficulties with people not complying with instructions. Comment on the question. Okay, I have some one lady up there. Okay. Thank you. Well, my name is Liliana Oliva, and I'm a student here at the LSE. And my question is related to the second customer principle that you mentioned, the prohibition of weapons indiscriminate by nature. And this principle in relation with the advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice related to nuclear weapons. And I would like to ask you if you consider that there has been any change on the customary law of weaponry so as to allow that nowadays nuclear weapons would be considered as unlawful. No. <laughs> 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 Andrew Jackson, Barrister. We've touched upon weapons law. Could I just ask our two speakers, given the depth of knowledge of ministries of defence within the states, how much should be drawn upon their knowledge by governments in regulating the development, marketing, and sale of weapon systems by private enterprise to third parties. <coughs> so far we have touched upon and dealt with national armies and forces and the use of weapons systems. We have not touched upon a country's balance of payments in allowing private enterprise to be
count, there was something like 10 that actually do it, of which the United Kingdom is one. Ironically, the state that does it most and has done it for longest is a state that is not party to Protocol 1 and is not treaty bound to do it, namely the United States. Therefore, that's where the legal review, the legal vetting, if you like, obligation fairly and squarely rests. The incentive, I suppose, in industry to satisfy themselves as to the legality of that which they're producing is a derivative, if you like, obligation in the sense that ideally they wouldn't be able to sell any of them if what they're producing is unlawful. The part that I'm going to need to sidestep is the part where you're talking about what obligations in ministries of defence ought to exist in relation to the control of that which private industry within the state manufactures, because that's not something upon which I wish to comment. Mm. Um, well, I mean, on arms export control, um, really Human Rights Watch hasn't done that much work on it because Amnesty actually does a lot of very good work and there's a point in duplicating that, and therefore I'm, I'm not an expert. I mean, I would say that you know, it's not just a question, it's not just an issue for the, the Ministry of Defence, it's an issue, an issue for other departments of state. When I was working in the Foreign Office, um, uh, and it's not just the, the, the nature of the weapons involved as well, it's also you know, whether the country that is seeking to import them or to buy them can actually afford them. Um, for example, uh, when I worked in the Foreign Office, there was a bit of a hoo-ha <coughs> about uh, the sale of a very expensive air traffic control system to Tanzania, um, which the World Bank decided was Tanzania couldn't afford, and which DFID decided that Tanzania couldn't afford. The MOD was rather keen to, uh, uh, to, to, to sell it for obvious reasons, and, uh, and Tony Blair um, came out uh, uh, rather predictably on the side of the MOD, and the sale went through and uh, ended up there. Um, but uh, yeah, it's not something that I'm really qualified to speak, to speak on um, uh, uh, in, in any detail. Um, just on, on Afghanistan, I mean, we've been very careful and, and this also goes to your point about caution. We are very cautious. We don't just uh, condemn without um, you know, having very good evidence collected by very well-trained um, and expert researchers. And in all our work on NATO airstrikes in Afghanistan, we never once uh, even got close to accusing uh, Western forces of, uh, of breaching any kind of laws. Uh, but, 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 but this goes to the point that I made uh, you know, in, in my my intervention, and I think, which I think is, is, is extremely important, and that is that you know even if your action is legal in a technical sense, um, and uh, I think you've got an, a, quite a good impression from um, what uh, Bill said earlier how difficult it is to actually uh, make a determination about legality or, or illegality in, in, in certain circumstances, uh, after, you know, particularly after a, 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 a conflict has already finished. Even if an action is legal, it still may be fundamentally, profoundly counterproductive to your strategic interests. Because if you are killing large numbers of civilians in the context of a war such as the one we're fighting in Afghanistan, then you're actually not doing yourself any service. And I think that you know, military planners understand this probably better than the politicians who have sent them to fight in this place in the, in the first place. Uh, and, and I sympathise very much with the position that, uh, the, 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 that the military often finds itself in in fighting these extremely difficult wars in places like Afghanistan uh, and perhaps in the future in, in, in other equally difficult uh, 
or to point out to some of you who missed the announcement that um, Bill Boothby's book is actually on sale this evening, and we have people from OUP here, and there will be a discount. Alternatively, you can pick up a discount form, and you'll be entitled to that for the discount if you order with them. Um, the second announcement is, once again, and also um, sponsored by the OUP, we're going to have a drinks reception, which I hope, we, as we walk out,